is on? I'm on. Welcome. Today's episode features Kevin Cusack, and Kevin's, Kevin and I have uh, an interesting uh, way of, of connecting. So originally, we connected in uh, a men's ministry backdrop. Kevin was sharing his story with one of my friends, uh, Hera Ministries, called Basecamp. I grabbed his ear afterwards, and we learned that some of our, our social fabric uh, interconnects loosely. Uh, Kev, this is what I know of you. You're incredibly active. You're pushing 70. Is that right? 66 this six, six month. 66 month. years old. Yep, yep. And Kevin doesn't know this, but I have friends who have raced in the exact same uh, races that he has entered into, and they have assured me that he's a burner. He will <laughs> he will test the medal on, on an athlete 20 years his junior. And uh, I'm just kind of fascinated to hear more about him. So uh, thanks so much for giving us some of your time today. Um, tell us a little bit about you. Uh, Great about to be here, man. I, what a place that we connected, base camp. How about that, huh? Yeah. I mean, that's ironic at the ministry called base camp. Totally. Yeah. So totally. grew up in, actually in central, central Michigan. Okay. On a farm. I had nine brothers and sisters. And, uh, yeah, we had, you know, we had the rural life, uh, which was cool in some ways, you know, because you got all this – you know, woods and background. And I spent a lot of time when I was very young hunting, actually. Spent a lot of my days hunting. And um, then I got into high school. I got into sports. I was very active in running, cross-country track. And, um, but my, I would say one of the overarching things was living in this, growing up in this rural area. So I was bored and I really sought adventure Mm. Um, because, you know, the opportunities weren't there. Like, you know, you about and I was an avid reader, so I'd read about these adventures. I read Jack London and all those, you know, books of doing things in in rugged outdoor places and having adventure. So it really started a fire in me to 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 get out and do things. And so yeah, I was you know as I said, I was very active, running, very uh, quite successful, you know, all state in track and cross country. And so I had a good platform. Yeah. And. But I would say part of what happened when my from my boredom was it also led me to, to trying to seek alternatives to what I would consider to be pru- true adventure, pure adventure, was um, using, like, alcohol, you know, mm. at a young age. Mm. I mean, we're, again, we're growing up in a rural area, Irish background. Yeah. Uh, little town I grew up in was about 80% Irish, so there's a little DNA there with alcohol. And so that was an outlet. For what I was look at it now, I think that was an outlet for you know this desire to go do things in adventure. And if you can't do them, you kind of you kind of use alcohol as another outlet and think, oh, we're having a great time and you know partying down all that kind of thing. Yeah. And so that led me uh, to you know party basically really hard in my uh, late high school, early college days. Kind of gave up on the running competitively, and then just one morning I woke up and I was like, hey, I'm gonna stop. Uh, uh, I'm gonna stop drinking. I just quit, and uh, okay. it wasn't easy. I really wanted, to, I really thought I needed it, and but I, you know, cold turkey by myself, and as a, as a result of that, there was a hunger for something else because if you have one thing that's really dominating your life, you need to, there's another big hole when that leaves, and part of that was to find myself back into doing things in adventure. Started running again. Um, Started hiking outdoors, uh, 
you know, doing things that I had always kind of thought, you know, it's always there, but I wasn't using it for a while. Mm. And then probably one of the things that really kicked it off was I decided to take, not go, uh, not go back to college for a semester. And I actually hitchhiked across the United States <laughs> and, uh, hitchhiked across the United States, which ended up being a four month trip. It was going to be like a three week trip and it turned into four months, ended up hitchhiking down into Mexico, uh, but through that process, you know, there were stopovers in mountain areas. It was the first time I'd ever been to the Rocky Mountains. Wow. You know, I was, I had actually a guy picked me up on his motorcycle in Illinois and we drove, I, he actually hadn't driven one very often and I actually had. So we drove it to, drove it to Estes Park and went hiking up in the mountains there. And, you know, of course, you know, first time there and on a motorcycle, it was pretty epic. And, you know, then again, you know, cruising down into Mexico, bought dive gear, snorkel gear, lived on a remote spot and uh, only by access by boat in the jungle. I mean, you know, so, all, you know, all of a sudden you're kind of dialing into to adventure, right? And, yeah. and trying to, f and just getting, you know, desire to do more of that. Um, I come back, I, I, it was winter time, very brutal winter that year, very brutal. And my thought was, uh, I, was I was going to school at Grand Valley uh, University, in Allendale, it was, you know, one of those, it was like in the mid late seventies when we had some pretty epic winter storms. And I was like, I'm either going to go back to Mexico or I'm really going to get into winter. And so I started skiing, cross country skiing, really got into cross country, okay. did a lot of racing, um, tried to make the Olympic team and cross okay. country. Yeah. So, uh, I got, you know, I got fairly close. I was doing pretty well. I was racing all over the Midwest, but you know, I had no money, nobody, nobody support. There's, Different a little bit than these days. Sure, but, yeah. Such I mean, is I, the life of a college, college Totally. And I was much. literally driving to races, sleeping in my car. Yeah, you were a dirtbag. I was a dirtbag. Only, you know, it's tough to be a dirtbag, you know, sleeping in your car and getting out and racing a 50K race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but anyway, it was, so that was cool. But then I uh, I wanted more. I wanted more in the venture space. Um, I actually changed my major to outdoor ed, and I wanted to have application to work with uh, juvenile delinquents. And... I uh, took on a Knowles course, yep. National Outdoor Leadership School. Sure. I did this fall semester course, and I think that was in 1978. Uh, and that was actually when Paul Petzalt, the founder of the school, was still there. Wow. Yeah, which is pretty unusual. Um, and that was a very, very big turning point. I mean, you, know, you spend four months in the wilderness, and there's different segments. There's, there's rock climbing. There's caving. Uh, there's canyon lands. We spent like three weeks exploring in the canyon lands. Um, and, you know, had some pretty epic, epic days there as well. Um, had some pretty close calls. Um, you know, it was, it was raw adventure. You know, you're in the, there's no, uh, there's nobody out there protecting you and you're, you're doing your thing. Um, and again, the, the program at the time was, was kind of, you know, kind of rugged. It was, you know, basically, uh, you know, if, if, uh, you didn't, if you did something wrong, they were not gentle about telling you. Sure. I mean, basically, what their, their attitude was, they're treat, treat, uh, teaching us to be expedition leaders. That was yeah. the whole goal. Yeah. And they said, if you screw up on that, you're going to kill somebody. So, you know, maybe we'll just kill you right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, the, the consequences were, were life. Ext extreme. Yeah. Yeah, but so an example would be is, like, we do a rappel, and when we were practicing rappels originally, we do rappels, and, you know, you get off a rappel, and you say, off rappel and all clear. Well, if you didn't step away... They actually threw rocks down at you, just to make sure. Just to say, like, you understood. Here's the why message: the all clear. Right. 
Why you say all clear? Wow. And don't say all clear if you're not all clear. Yeah, so you did it in its heyday. Um, I think, so I actually did a semester in New Mexico with an abbreviated Knowles uh, curriculum. And I got a whiff of some of the things that I think you got fully immersed in. But what's, what's I see changing now, even from my time experiencing some of that, I think there was a much more uh, militaristic hierarchy, a much more military-styled uh, leadership profile mm-hmm. at that time in the 70s, That's right. 80s. Yeah. I see that moving. That's true. Oh, no, it's definitely it's definitely true. I actually went back and did an alumni one about five years ago. I did a hut-to-hut. Is it getting soft? It's getting, it's getting mellow. Yeah. I wouldn't say soft as much as just mellowed yeah, out. Yeah, maybe you know, that's not They're the not right as, they're, you know, I mean, some of the stuff they did, you couldn't do these days. I yeah. mean, it, you, I mean, I, I, uh, I hooked into a, a, a belay in, inappropriately. We were doing an ice climb and I hooked into it in the wrong way. And the leader, the instructor slapped me across the face with a rope. I mean, not gently. This I mean, back in the seventies, back in the seventies, literally slapped me across the face. Yeah. And like, you know, you could have killed me kind of thing. Yeah. And I, and I could have, well, to, a to a hard scrabble Irishman who's, uh, whose motor's always running, uh, a slap across the face might be the only thing that gets his attention. That's a good point. Yeah. And, that, and that did. And that made an impact. But yeah. no, I did do the, the backcountry ski tour as an alumni a few years ago and, you know, had a great time. Uh, but you're much kinder, gentler uh, sure. type of program. Sure. And, and so, you know, I, don't, I mean, I, I would say it was an epic experience. And if someone has the opportunity to, and the desire, they should do something like that. I mean, it, it gives you, equips you really, really well. I mean, wow. you're doing things over and over again to get that experience. And Yeah. So what came, uh, you, you grew up rural, you grew up on a farm, had, uh, had a, a, an experience with alcohol at a young age, looking for outlets, transitioned into something that was a much healthier alternative to boozing and partying, and started to seek out active outdoor adventure. Took you on a four-month-long road trip through the Rockies down into to what sounds like a pretty <laughs> epic adventure with dive and surf in in Mexico. You came back, did a little bit of knolls. Then what? What? So actually, so I, I got the school to pay for me to go to Knowles. And so when I got back, I was, I was actually running the outdoor ed program while I went to college for, for Grand Valley. So that was pretty cool. So you knew about leverage at a very young yeah, age. Yeah, I got into leverage. I got into like, well, because if you don't have any resources, you got to think, how do, you, how do you have this, get these resources to do things? And, you know, that's, that was just an example. Of, and, and I, and I love that. So I came back and... Um, you know, started doing rock climbing trips, uh, backpacking trips, canoe trips, uh, sailing trips, uh, you know, and primarily, you know, in Mich- Michigan, Midwest, the school wanted to do it for, you know, an outlet, kind of a publicity thing at the time, really, because like, hey, look what we're doing at this college. This is really Cutting fun edge. stuff. Cutting edge. It was very much. It was one of the original outdoor ed programs. Wow. I mean, for the students. Yeah. We also, I also taught outdoor ed and as, as a student, <laughs> but I was teaching as an instructor. That was pretty cool. This is cool. That That's was really good. Cool. So, and what years were that? Like, this is going roughly. like seventy eight, seventy nine. I graduated in eighty. So, okay. so yeah, a couple of years there, like that, maybe through yeah, seventy eight, seventy nine, eighty, and um, during that time, also for the summer, this is part of the the juvie thing. I really wanted to work with juvies, and I found a program. Actually, the program found me. I get a call at night. They're like, "Hey, this is a group um, out of uh, called Eagle Village." They're like. We're, um, 
we have this program where we do 10 weeks with juvenile delinquents. They have an option of either going to detention center or going on this program. And judge chooses or they choose or a combination thereof. And we're, we really need someone with your skill set. They, they had seen my resume. I, know, I think I sent it to someone, and they're like, we need you. We need you. And I was like, hey, you know, it's cool. And, and they're like, well, are you Christian? And, and I'm like, no, I'm really not. At the time, I was like, no, I'm not a Christian. But I said, that's cool. I don't mind working with them. So we were doing these um, three-week programs, taking juvies, uh, high, rock climbing, backpacking, and it was reality therapy. So basically the good, cool part about that is is you know, you're in the wilderness, and if they don't want to do something or they don't want to make their, they don't want to pack their bag or they don't want to cook their food, you're just like, okay, you know, let's see how this works out for you, bud. And if you don't want to paddle your boat, your canoe, okay, we'll see how this works out because we're going down the river here and, you know, we'll see you later. And, um, which was perfect because that's the kind of thing I, I like. And, you know, my original intent was I was thinking, come into it like, man, we're going to help these kids. We're going to, you know, there's a dozen at a time, let's say. And these are hardcore. These are coming from the inner city. Had some serious crimes. Some and heavy, heavy trauma. Heavy some, trauma. Some backstory. That's big time. Backstory, yeah, uh, for these guys was tough. Um, and, you know, when you get down to it, really, you finally get to the point where you're like, you know what, if I could help one or two of these kids, sure. that, that would be a significant thing. I mean, just realize it's not, it's not possible with one person necessarily. And, you know, part of it is, is the spiritual answer. You know, if they don't have change in their heart, they don't have change in their soul, uh, you know, long-term change is not going to be real. I, I had the experience of one of the, one of the kids, you know, as this happens a lot where the kids are like, Hey, you know, my dad will do anything for me. You know, he's, he'd come here in a heartbeat. Well, you know, wouldn't you know, like one of those kids is dead never showed up, to pick him up. Wow. So either the pre the parole officer or the parents come and pick them up. A lot of times it's a parole officer. But there's also that some of the times these kids are going back to juvie, even though they did the program, they still had some more time to serve. But, so I took, the, I took one of these kids home. I just happened to be going down to West Virginia to go rock climbing, actually, and I said, I'll give you a ride. He was in Detroit. And I dropped him off. I went to his house, and his dad was having a card game. And he was drunk, and all his buddies were drunk. And it was like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And, of course, he's like, oh, man, I forgot today was the day. I'm so sorry. You know, it's like, and it, the kid threw it down on him. He's like, dude, you're ridiculous. Wow. You're ridiculous. You know, you told me you were going to pick me up. And, you know, you just see, like, okay, here's the environment I'm taking him back to. Here's what I'm taking this guy back to. Yeah, a moment of clash for you. Yeah, you're sure. like, what, you know, how long is this going to last? Yeah. I mean, how long is it going to be? So, anyway, those are, that was a great, I really enjoyed it. It was very hard. I mean, you know, 21 days with those guys is not fun. No. I mean, it's hardcore. Yeah. Uh, and you're 24-7 on it. So anyway, um, so I moved on from there, and I got married, and we took a four-month honeymoon, not surprisingly. We did adventure stuff. I took, did rock climbing, kayak, whitewater kayaking, bicycling in Nova Scotia. Uh, you know, that was the whole plan. We basically took all of our wedding presents back, most of them, <laughs> cashed them for cash, and went to the outdoor store and bought what we really wanted. You know, climbing ropes. There's, uh, there's no shortage of fun between your ears. No, there was no shortage. We, we, were, yeah. we were maxing on the fun. Yeah. And so then going back, to, I worked on my, I was working a master's at Kelvin and ran into a group called Christian Adventures that did bicycle tours, backpacking, and sailing. And I started working with those guys. Um, we were doing bike tours and all over the United States and in Europe as well. And some backpacking. I, I built backpacking into the program, a little bit of rock climbing and stuff. And 
so at one point, then I went to, I moved to the East Coast um, to extend the program there. Started doing bicycle tours there. This, at this point, I was married, had one child. Child was going on the bike rides with us. <laughs> had him on the back. Had him on the back of my bike. That was some epic days riding through the mountains with him on. Um, and then we uh, then we have our second child. We're going to have our second child, and I was you know doing more of administrative, like sending people on trips as opposed sure. to being able to participate. And that wasn't what my model was. You know, I was you know designed. I mean, I feel like I was. That's what you you know. It's where you're at. What you're doing with people. You know, it's not, that wasn't an into administration. So, um, migrated out of that into, um, uh, basically I had already been doing some investing on my own with very, very little bit, little bits of money and investments in stocks and that kind of thing. And that led me into become a stock advisor, stock broker, a wealth advisor, however you want to say it. And, um, you know, I've been doing that now for 36 years. Yeah, and you have uh, you have a local outfit. It, well, it's in Grand Rapids. It's Pearl Street Investment Advisory. Okay. Yeah, okay. Pearl Street Investment Management, and uh, we're we're within another company called Stiefel uh, Financial, okay. uh, a public company. But so yeah, you know, I we had ended up having seven kids, and so as you can might imagine, um, there wasn't any like room for a long term adventure programs. But my wife is incredibly understanding about that. So there were there were uh, maybe you know three days, four days, five days, maybe not uh, you know maybe once or twice a year that was open for that. And I would do whitewater kayaking somewhere. I would do backcountry ski touring, um, you know. And then it got to be where the kids got a little older, and I started taking those guys, you know. So we'd go uh, 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 winter camping, we'd go backpacking in the summertime. Uh, I did some father. Uh, child trips and out, out west, uh, some father daughter, some father son. I actually did them with some other folks that it was you know somewhat organized. Um, that was you know very very impactful. Um, yeah, because you can get into some nice good topics, hard oh, topics. Sure, yeah, the good stuff. The good stuff. Yeah, that's where know, the good stuff comes out. Strips it down. So yeah, I kind of kept the adventure flame burning. Yeah, you did. Yeah. That's really cool. Wow. Okay. So you and your wife uh, had seven, uh-huh. and there was no shortage of adventure with that. And did it, I, I got to imagine that the the full family became well well equipped to to charge into the wilderness and and understand uh, what it could offer. Is that is that yeah? A that fair way I to would say, say we you know some of it more intensely than others. Some okay. got into it more intensely than others, yeah. um, but I would say yes. There was, you know, like my daughters, I would say they weren't like into the, they didn't want to, they would be up for hiking or something like that. But if it was like a a climb through the mountains, that wasn't something they were interested in. Okay. As opposed to the boys. But so we did do bike tours. Yeah. That we got into that and we, we, uh, you know, sometimes the kids accuse us of kidnapping him instead of a vacation. It was actually a kidnap on a bike tour. And so we, you know, we'd go to different places and, and we'd park by these bike trails and cruise and, you know, obviously they were catching on like, hey, this is pretty heavy duty, but, um, and we tried to keep it, you know, light, but. Dad, you know, I thought four star meant yeah, right. air <laughs> yeah. conditioning, not right. fighting flies and sun. And, you know, you got some of those epic ones where it was hot and it was a long trail and, you know, but I think for the most part, they'd be like, hey, that was, that was pretty cool. Obviously they, they as I say now, I, I taught them to be adventurous and they took it from here. Ah, that's cool. So they're all very much into adventures, uh, activity on their own and together. 
Very so, cool. Yeah. Well, that's great. That gives us a, a good idea of, of some of the ingredients that have helped form you into, into who you are. Um, tell us, so Kevin agreed to share uh, a specific story, and I'm going to tell you how I found out about this story. Uh, recently, I was affirmed as an elder, and I was at my first elders meeting trying not to look foolish, and my first mistake was to sit right next to the lead pastor and founder of the church. Um, I'm glad I made that mistake because he asked me if I knew what Kevin was up to. He knows that I, I somewhat follow Kevin loosely, and uh, he said, you've got to have this story for your podcast, and he showed me his text string, and uh, effectively, if my memory serves me right, Kevin, you can attest to this, but it basically said, hey, prayers would be appreciated. We're pinned down, and it's not looking good. That That's that's pretty much, the, that was the message. I have, yeah, from that point. So I, I looked at Jeff, and I said, oh, my gosh, what's going on? Where is he at? Yeah. And I'm going to let I'm gonna let Kevin kind of break that down and frame it up. But um, effectively, I, I learned about a, a situation where Kevin was with his son, and it sounded like he, he was scared for his life. So with that, Kevin, uh, introduce us uh, to, to the story that you're about to tell us. Okay, so that goes, this is recent, okay? So this is January of 2022. Um, so Antarctica, we were climbing Mount Vincent in Antarctica, and people are like, why would you do that? Well, actually, it's interesting. There's two primary reasons. And one, uh, they're, they're both probably equal in interest, but one was particularly of interest. So I, as I mentioned, I'd done a lot of cycling. I basically had raced everywhere, every continent in the world, raced or ridden in every continent in the world except Antarctica. So I always had to say, except Antarctica. So I was like, you know, I'd like to go down to Antarctica and go biking sometime. I mean, as much as possible, right? And so that was on the radar, Mount Vincent's on the radar. My oldest son was like, hey, I'd like to go to Antarctica. So uh, two years ago, I had signed up. I said I was going to sign up with a group and basically said, hey, I want to go. With their, They were going to do a trip, and obviously COVID came in. Um, another friend of mine, uh, Ed Veesters, who people know, um, you know, one of the only guys from the United States that climbed all the 8,000-meter peaks without oxygen. So I've known him for a long Ed and I have known each other for a long time. And he texts me and says, hey, I'm doing a trip. Why don't you come with me? And I was like, great. I'm in, man. We're in. It lines up perfect. We're, we're already planning on it. <laughs> it's one of those, like, it was one of those, like, so I still got pushed off a year. The old dirt bag still lives. Yeah, right. It's like, still, yeah, you're like. We're going to Mexico. Yeah, we're connected. up on a motorcycle. Yeah, yeah, okay. we're, yeah we're connected, right? Oh, yeah, I, mean, I don't know like, the rider. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, you, you got, well, when you know someone like that contacts you, you're like, okay, this is going to be done well. Yeah, this, well, of course. This is going to yeah. be done well. We're going to do this right. And so once you see to me, if that's, if you got that platform to start out on, man, you, you're a miles ahead of, you, you know, okay, yes. how do I get there? And yeah, you just say yes. So, so yeah, we're on. So it's, it's go time. And, uh, you know, we, you know, I, I literally, even when I was leaving, I was like, there's a, because of the COVID protocols that were in, in, involved, I was like, we got a 50, 50 chance of ever getting on the island getting on the continent. Even the day I left, um, you know, you had to test before you left. To get to Chile, you got to Chile. You had to get tested to, when you rove, arrived at the airport. You had to go to. In, I was in Santiago. Had to stay 24 hours to get another result from the test that I had at the airport. If that was negative, if that was positive, you didn't go anywhere. You stayed in that hotel that you booked for 10 more days. So, it, fortunately, it was negative. Uh, 
go down to Punta Arenas, which is the takeoff point. It's southern to it's the tip of Chile. It's the gateway to um, Patagonia. And that's a big-time adventure place there. You go into that airport, and everybody's got backpacks. Every, and as a matter of fact, uh, someone took my backpack that looked identical to their backpack, and it was a woman who took it at the, at the, air, at the, at the airport because she thought it was hers. And I didn't know the difference until I got to the hotel. My hotel was a half hour away. Her hotel was four hours into Patagonia. Anyway, we had a little drama there getting the things changed back because she had some pretty, co- pretty critical equipment of mine. We found each other. We got it done. Um, took a little soothing, but we got it done. Wow. So anyway, we were in Patagonia. Sorry, we were in Punta Arenas for four days just to get tested at 11 o'clock every day. Yeah. That's the only reason we were there. So this is, you want it. This is a trip that you have. Yeah. You, you want this. I want this. Yeah. We got it on the, we got it on the, the target is acquired. We are focused. And so, um, yeah, so, you know, you, finally it's a go time, right? You get tested, you get on a plane, it's a 757, and you're going to land on the ice. You literally land on an ice runway. There's no, you know, and Big you, bird on a frozen lake. Big bird. And they're like, hey, bring your gear. So when you step off, it's like you're stepping out in a 14,000-foot peak in the wintertime. They said, when you step out of that plane, be ready. And so I was like, hey, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I know how to dress. You know, layer up. Uh, I was kind of wearing what I consider to be moderate to cold Michigan. That's what my that's what I was wearing. I wasn't wearing my heavy duty stuff that I had for Antarctic. I was wearing that. Twenty degrees and blowing. Yeah, twenty degrees, maybe even ten, blowing. Just, okay, just due to the extra the extra caution. Right. Sure. That was my. I took it. Well, I figured I'll start there and see what happens. I mean, if I can go by with this, great. I'm. This is going to be you know not that bad. That's see that that stands to reason. Right. So you yeah. So you're testing out right. I mean, there were people literally on the plane, that were wearing eight thousand meter wearing eight thousand meter down suits on the plane. In the Puna Arenas so Airport. they're in their summit gear. Yeah, like, hello. I mean, that's like, you know, that's for 25, 30 below. I couldn't believe these. This is, and, and again, some of these people are what we call the tourists, where they can fly down to this air base, take a ski plane to the South Pole. Okay, so this is four-hour flight from the, ski, from the air base on a ski plane. Because of COVID, you can't go in any buildings there. You can walk around, take pictures, get back on the plane, fly four hours back. It's an eight-hour round trip. That's what they were doing. And then they stay outside, you know, they stay in a tent that's made up for them um, and at the air base, and they fly back the next day to Chile. That's their deal, 48 hours. I mean, if they can make it. I mean, if, if, they, if the weather, you know, everything has to work, you know, perfectly, of course, there's a lot of logistics. But anyway, that wasn't, that's, that's just kind of interesting for that clientele. That's like asking Roland Martin to catch you a bass so you can hold it. And get yeah, right, and take a look at it. it. Right. Something like that. I mean, you look, no, you're there. I mean, you're experiencing it, but... So anyway, we, we take another conversation. Yeah, we take off. We're there. Um, uh, we're, we land. It's epic. We get out of the plane. And yeah, you know what? There's a, there's, it's, it's an open area because it's runway. There's wind. I don't know what the temp was, maybe 15, 20 below. And, you know, any, what happens at that point is the seams, any of the seams of your clothes that are not taped or insulated, insulated and taped, you feel the cold coming through the seam. So literally there'll be, you know, the rest of your body's pretty good but there might be a seam on your arm around your shoulder or down your leg where all of a sudden you're like wow this is like burning you know it's like this is like a really uh intense (laughs) uh cold that's right very specific spot so you know you're like pretty soon you're like okay i'm layering up i'm putting some more gear on you know you're putting something on that's blocking those you know because if you look at really good arctic gear there's no seam that's not taped and insulated 
because they know it's obviously going to come through the stitching and, you know, you're going to be cold right there. So anyway, that was your first like, okay, hello. And then they pick you up in these trucks and, uh, you know, equipped and you drive about five miles and you show up at this base and they walk you around and, you know, it's really very comfortable. I mean, it's got uh, a heated uh, Quonset type tent where you have three meals a day. Okay. Social place. Uh, They got a library heated that you can go hang out in, read books. Uh, they've got heated bathrooms, kind of heated. I mean, like maybe they're 20 degrees, but that's better than 20 below. And, uh, you know, you're sleeping outside. You put your tent, you put your tent up on ice and you're just, and then, you know, so that was, that was, that was good. And then, um, you know, you get orientation to what's going on. You, there's a very interesting cast of characters there, as you might imagine. Sure. Very interesting. So if you've seen, four, if people have seen 14 Peaks, Nims, yeah. who was the climb? Okay, so he was there. The three Shepherd brothers who were with him, they were there. They were there. The three Shepherd brothers actually were guiding a, this is ironic, a Ukrainian-Russian climbing team. They were helping to guide that team. How cool is that? Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of ironic. Um, Here's a little blip in humanity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it literally was on their jackets, Ukrainian-Russian climbing Come on team. Oh, now. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah, so... Um, so yeah, and, and you know, there was another guy there, uh, Ryan Waters, whose just book just came out. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but somebody, you know, might want to look it up, Ryan Waters. So he is, um, he climbed all of the, the seven summits okay. and he's done the North and the South pole across the North and the South pole, uh, unsupported. Okay, so there's some high profile athletes, high profile, yeah. you know, but they don't, but the thing is, is you, they, they don't behave that way. They don't, you've got to like. You know, people were there, and Ed, Ed Vistras is there. And there was another table, and they were actually talking about Ed Vistras. So Ed Vistras, just so everybody knows, this is uh, Eddie Bauer, Ed Vistras. Yeah, right. Okay. Right. Well, originally, it was a different company, but it got bought first, by Ed first Bauer. First Descent. First their, Descent. All their high-tech gear. Right, all the for, t- But at Mountain Hardware, he actually was with Mountain Hardware, and then they sold to, um, um, what's the one with the woman's Columbia? Yeah, they sold to uh, Mountain Hardware. He was, so he was oh, rep. He from, was from Ma. Ma, he yeah. was uh, he was the the spokesperson or the you know one of the ambassadors, if you will, for yeah. Mountain Hardware way back, yeah. and that's when he was doing all the peaks. And he actually climbed with another friend of mine who he climbed uh, K two with another friend of mine named Scott Fisher. So if you recognize that name, sure. unfortunately Scott passed away in that climb on 1998 up on Everest. You were friends with Scott. I was Scott was a climbing partner of mine. We climbed we climbed together, and yeah, he was an instructor at Knowles. And then My after, word. so we climbed. Yeah, that would have been yeah late seventies. Right, we climbed three weeks together in Knowles, and then we reconnected after that. You know, after I was out of Knowles and came back, to, I came back to Wyoming and climbed some more, and he climbed with us. Yeah, oh, man. so he actually invited me to go on that Everest trip that he passed away on. So yeah, there's you know into thin air. Into thin air. That's yeah. the book. That's yeah, Scott's in that book, obviously. Wow. So yeah, you actually lost a dear friend. Yeah, pretty close. That wow. was that was a pretty pretty traumatic situation. What a different, um, what a unique angle. That's a, that's a conversation that I, I'm sure could could be delved into in in detail. Um, walk us through, Kevin, if you would, just in the interest of time. Let's try and, and yeah, right. move this toward the adventure that you guys are are setting out toward. Right. Um, First of all, one of the questions that I had is, how old is your adult son that you're doing? Thirty nine. Okay. Thirty nine. So okay. He's and he's he's uh, he's a marine, uh, you know, two tours of combat, you know, so he's he's not unaccustomed to extreme extensive experience. He can do uncomfortable. Very much so. Do uncomfortable. He was an officer in the Marine Corps, but you know, led 
infantry squad. So, um, so yeah, so he was up for it. Hey, if you have plans to take your medicine in the woods this weekend or in upcoming months, uh, you might want to check out uh, Sawyer's Premium Permethrin. Uh, ticks are becoming more and more an issue around my hometown of Michigan. I have seen more and more. Uh, it comes in a convenient spray bottle. Just hang your stuff, spray it down, let it dry, and you're good to go. Uh, for 42 days or six washings, it's safe for all kinds of different gear. I use it on sleeping bags. Uh, I use it on my tents. Um, you can put it on most anything, hammocks, backpacks. Uh, it's pretty safe stuff. So uh, check them out, Sawyer Products, Sawyer.com. So yeah, we so we get we get we leave the base. We fly up to so there's Air Base, which is uh, Union Glacier Bay, as that's called. We just take a ski plane to base camp. Okay, base camp. Uh, you take your gear off. You pick up a sled. So you got a backpack and a sled. Okay, and we don't we don't stay at base camp. We're kind of on the move because we we lost a couple of days due to logistics of weather, and so we 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 got to get going and. So we, we go up to what's called low camp. So it's base camp, low camp, high camp, summit. Okay. So, okay. So you do it in four chunks. Four chunks. Okay. And so you're, you're theoretically, you're acclimatizing, right? But we're not acclimatizing. We're just going. But again, it wasn't that high. I mean, we land at 2,800 feet. And we're going up to like, let's say, um, 6,000 6, at low camp, 5,800, something like that. So we go to low camp. We're, we're, we're hauling uh, sleds. We're roped together. We got rope teams, four people on a team because there is some crevasses, and you're actually you can hear it when you walk over them. They sound very hollow. Small incidences with dropping into these not so deep spots, fortunately. But you're staying roped, and you're ready to you know you got to be prepared to stop the person if they're falling, and you're not. So how big is your your squad? How big is your? We team? have eight climbers and three guides. Okay. Yeah. So and there's um, three women, five guys. Cool. Uh, one of the women, uh, fifty. Two or three at, at Summit at Everest and Lutzi in May, and of twenty one, and um, she so she was experienced. Uh, most of the people there had some big mountain experience. Okay, another guy had not had been on Everest with them, had not summited. He had tried Everest and Lutzi, and actually had not made either one. Um, just a matter of he didn't give enough time to acclimatize. He tried to cut two weeks off the trip, and it didn't work. Um, but he also had big mountain experience. Um, so anyway, there was, you know, there wasn't any real rookies on the trip. Um, so we don't have to worry about that part. So we get to, we get to low camp again, low camp has an unique situation where they have a big ridge uh, around the camp and the sun's 24 seven. So it's literally bright constantly. You have to wear eye shades because it's so bright. And when you're in the tent, actually, and the sun's beaming on it. It feels kind of nice. It's kind of like 30 degrees maybe or something, you know? little greenhouse effect. Very much so. Um, but in this case, from 3 a.m. until about 10, the sun would be behind this ridge, okay? And so you'd be darked out. You'd be shadowed. And when you're in the shadow, it's just amazing how just quickly it just drops. I mean, it drops 30 degrees literally in minutes. So, you know, if you're at minus 10, you know, you may be at minus 25, 30, 40 degrees below. So you're basically hunkering down. You're staying in the tent. So we do a small climb on a small peak. Um, that day, we get there. We drop our stuff. We do that. We stay overnight. Uh, we get up at like, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning. You know, you're not taking close track of time because the time doesn't mean anything. There's no, there's no, sun, no sunset, no sunrise. Um, you know, some days you're eating dinner at 1 o'clock in the morning. So 
we chill there for another day. Then we take off, and that's the tough part. Uh, we're going from low camp to high camp. High camp has about a 3,000-foot fixed line at a very steep angle. So rather than having to, um, you know, have everyone bolt in or whatever, you know, put the ice stakes in, it's already staked. You just, use, you know, you're using these ascenders, and you're going up to climb. You drop the sled at this point, so you leave the sled back at low camp. You leave about third third of your gear there, so you about a 50-pound pack on. And you're cruising up, and uh, yeah, it's you know we're going you're going between nine thousand and twelve thousand on the fixed line, basically. So it's a pretty intense you know few hours. Are you do do any of you have oxygen on at any point? No. Nope. In this, in as far as I know, nobody had oxygen with them. But there okay. there may I might be wrong about that because you can get some pretty small canisters that are okay. pretty light. So okay, I don't think anybody there was people that brought diamox and that kind of stuff, but. What's what's that? Diamox is a is a is a drug you can take to kind of acclimate you faster. You're, oh, okay. you're getting your bloodstream go faster to, that, to and that's kind of it, it seems as though that might be kind of the push. Just the, the the ingredients in mountaineering already being that you've got hard chargers. Like the yeah. the ingredients for mountaineering requires a certain type of individual to be getting out of that plane in the first place. Hard chargers are always looking for an edge. That's right. So That's right. It, would make, it, it would stand to reason that, that there would be some sort of tool that people had uh, had found use for that would help them climb a mountain faster. Yeah. There's that, and there's just the, 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 the drive to do, to, to yeah, like to be successful and to get up on top. And, you know, but like, for instance, the woman that uh, um, she had been on Denali that, that, that summited last May, she had been, Denali, or sorry, she'd been on Everest. Uh, she summited last May on Everest, and then, but she had prior to, prior been to Everest and she lost a pinky on frostbite. Did she? Yeah. Uh, so we were, you know, frostbite was a real factor obviously yeah. in this trip. 30 below. Yeah. That's, that's, it, it's okay. real. Yeah. It's real. But you, again, you know, if you're used, I mean, coming from Michigan, I think you have kind of an advantage because you're like, okay, I know how to handle cold. I mean, you got to manage cold, you know, and it takes a lot of factors. It manages what you do for it at night. What you, how do you handle your boots? How you handle your gear? You know, how you sleep, everything. Yeah. So if you got that down, you're, you know, you're, you're 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 a lot further away than if you're Southern California surfing guy and shows up in Antarctica. That's right. So anyway, we're um, so we're taking the fixed line up. We get up there. Uh, it's it's pretty amazing, but it's very barren. You know, in Antarctica anyway, there's no trees, there's no animals, there's no living animals in Antarctica. I mean, there's on the coast. There's 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 uh, penguins and walruses, I guess, but not inland. There's nothing. There's no trees. There's no rivers. There's no lakes. It's rocks, ice, and snow. And what's kind of ironic is the peaks don't always look that high because the snow's so deep. So you might have a 12,000-foot peak, but it's buried. So it might be buried under three or 4,000 feet of snow. So you've got these big glaciers. you got these hanging glaciers. And, the, and it's, as you might expect, it's surreal. I mean, every day I was there, I was like, this terrain is surreal. I feel like I'm walking in some kind of a movie. This sounds like George Lucas land. Yeah, it looked like it. It actually looked like it. It's just like, I can't believe this is real. And, this, and even the way the sun would be sometimes. And the cloud, there's scenes you'd never see anywhere in, anywhere else in the world, I think, or at least I've never seen anywhere else in the world. That's really cool. Yeah, so so we so we get up on top, and, you know, we're going to plan on taking a day. And we're, you know what, I was, we are pretty tired. I mean, it was like, that was a major push. Um, you, you know, you get your stuff set up, you have dinner, and you're just sacked out. The next day, um, people are going to try and go for the summit, we're getting, you get a weather forecast every morning at 11 o'clock. That's basically the only communication you get from 
Base, Base at Union, Union Glacier Bay. And this meteorologist actually is, is very renowned. He does, he does forecasts for Everest. He does forecasts for K2. He's world-renowned. For some reason, where he is, look, in, the, in Antarctica, it's a good way or it's a good spot to be able to uh, do meteorology from. For some reason, it's, there's, a, there's a lot of meteorological activity that precipitates other activity other places. So anyway, uh, love, you know, we get this update, hey, winds are building. Winds are going to build. And, you know, people are like, hey, we're going to go for the summit. And I didn't, I was like, eh, I don't think I'm going to go. And I was like, I, you know, I don't think it's going to be worth it. Uh, you know, I don't think it's going to happen. We'll see, right? And I just decided I didn't feel that strong enough to want to do that. And, you know, fortunately or unfortunately at that time, you know, there was, they went up about an hour and a half. Winds picked up a lot. Frostbite factors came up high. Other people were getting it on other teams, and they turned around and came back. So the dinner that night, more discussion. Uh, 11 o'clock the next morning, big-time storm coming in. So choice is, do we go down? Do we go back down to low camp and ride it out, or do we come back up to high camp? Or, do sorry, do we stay at high camp? We decided to stay at high camp. We, we hunkered down. We put snow blocks around our tents. We put the deep ice stakes in. You know, to anchor our tents down. You do everything you can, you know, but there's only so much you can do. There's, like I said, it's very barren. There's nothing up there. Um, and the storm starts, and at first you're like, well, this isn't that bad. You know, maybe 25-mile-an-hour winds. That's not that big of a deal. You know, I've certainly been through that. But it just keeps building and building and building, and it goes for like 10 hours. And it gets to the point where literally it's roaring. You can't even hear the person in the tent next to you. And it's just roar. It's just a sound like I've never heard before. You know, people talk about the tornado sound like trains. Well, it was just like jet engines. And it, and what was ironic was certain times it would literally stop. There wouldn't be a breath, and you'd be like, "Oh wow, it's over." You hear your heartbeat. Type yeah, thing. you're like, "It's over," and then wham, it just came back with a vengeance, and then it would push the tent down almost on your face. And so my big concern was, look, this could rip our tent open. I mean, this could cause our seams to... I've, I'd been in situations where we had storms in very cold weather and the poles snapped because it was brittle, so brittle. So at this point, it's probably 40 below, 45, without the wind chill. And it's very, you know... And But I'm, I mean, as far as physically, I'm comfortable. I'm not freezing. I'm feeling okay. But I'm like, if our tent rips open, we're, we're going to be in a compromised situation very quickly. And I, I told my son, we need to... Need to pack our stuff in a bag so that if we have to go Alamo, which is dive into somebody else's tent, um, you know, we have to be ready to do it. Just grab a bag and just go because we won't last. You won't last out there. I mean, you're not wearing, I don't wear, I'm not wearing my jacket in my bag. I don't want to get too hot. So, so that's, it's just going on and on. And yeah, so you start thinking through, you know, as you would, you're like, okay, what, um, you know, you're kind of like, what's worst case scenario, right? When you get in these circumstances, you know, you're kind of like, you know, what's the worst case scenario? And you're like, ah, let's see. Wait a minute. There's nobody, there's nobody to come and get us. There's no, there's no helicopter rescue. There's the f- Chile is the closest rescue. Chile's a four hour flight. And then they got to land on an airstrip and then they got to get up here. You're talking days. And so, yeah, suddenly you feel very, very small, very small. You're like, you just kind of see yourself. At least I saw myself as like this little speck in this immense, wasteland and you're up there to have fun and have adventure and you're and then you start thinking you know what antarctica can kill me 
this could this may kill me. And you know, you start thinking about well, headline, uh, you know, uh, adventurers die with early winter storm because it's technically their summer, right? But you know, I mean, summer's a relative term, but it was a storm like they'd have in the winter. And so, yeah, so you know, I start, I'm like, you know, literally, you're like, hey, Jesus, calm the storm. I mean, you think about those things where Jesus calmed the storm, and you're, that's like real, like. Jesus, please calm this storm. And then our food tent blows away, and uh, one of the, there was one of the women, her tent starts tearing apart, and she's yelling. And we're like, you know, whoa, this is, this is it. This is getting real. And, you know, fortunately, Jake went out, my son went out, helped, you know, secure the tent, her tent, uh, settle it down. But, you know, it's not stopping. And you're, you're just like, we're okay, we're at the place now where you're like, okay, because you're kind of like, you know, it's, it's, it's 40, 40 mile an hour, it's bad, but it's not going to kill you. 50, whatever, 60, and then you think, you know what, if this got like, this gets like 5% worse, this is, we're going real critical. So yeah, I, we had these many garments, and which is what you referred to earlier. We had these many garments, and you could, this is the only communication we had, a satellite, and you can text on them. And you text, and so I was like, hey, I text Jeff, and our I said, hey, we're pinned down up here. We could use some serious prayer support. And uh, I said, I'm okay, but we're close. And so, you know, that's that was the message. That was the message. <laughs> and, you know, and yeah, Jeff, uh, you know, Jeff said, hey, praying now, uh, I'm sure it's unsettling to have tent rattling. And I'm like, yeah, we're a little past that. We're a little past the wind rustling the tent. And that's where you send the messages. <laughs> Wow. Um, I've never experienced cold to that degree. I've never experienced isolation to that degree. Few people have. I have in my lifetime experienced enough calculated risk that I will willingly move into having weighed those what ifs. And that's why I think we do what we do. Because if if we don't, we're not alive. That's right. But there was a point where you said, ah, "I'm not. I'm not quite so sure." And that that point to me, what I heard is, as soon as you got word from base camp that there was a storm coming, all of the 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 push that I heard from your character coming through from yes, I'm going to go ahead and say yes. Two years out to fight through a global pandemic and all of the potential hang-ups that right. go with that. I'm still going to say yes, even though my bag just went to Chile right. with, some, with somebody who's, you know, gave me her, her stuff. I'm still going to say yes when, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Just run that. No, you're, you know, and, and you're hitting on a good point there. You kind of got summit fever. Some would call it summit fever. And I've been with other people on other climbs. I did Kilimanjaro a number of years ago, which is, you know, I think a good climb. It's 20,000 feet. It's real altitude. There were guys on that trip that got really sick at like 13,000. Like two or three days before we got to the summit, they were really sick and stayed sick. And honestly, I was like, to those guys, if I were you, I'd go down. Yeah. I wouldn't go for this. Yeah. And they made it. They went there. I was like, I would penetrate. I mean, they didn't eat for three days. Mm. And they went to 20,000 feet and they were super sick. I, I, I don't have that. I mean... 
it's not that important to me. There's a point where your experience, your level of experience said, ah, hold on a second, Kevin. That's right. What, talk to me a little bit about that, that meeting that took place when you were talking about going back down to base camp or going for it. Yeah, it was short. That was, that was like everybody's like, you know, hey, it, we'll stay. You know, how, you know, how bad can it be? There's, there's a really good book out there. Maybe you know this book called Deep Survival. Yeah, you okay. actually told me about it. Yeah. I read it. It's, it's great, an awesome isn't it? Book. So basically the deal is, is you take your set of assumptions with you everywhere you go. And oftentimes you're wrong. So what we did is we made an assumption. Right, we made an assumption that that's wind's going to be up, but it's you know it's not going to be that bad. And so what happens is when you get to the place where you realize that assumption was dead wrong, it's too late. It's too late. And so you know you so you're thinking through the trip before you're there, and when you go there, and you're thinking, well, yeah, you know, there's going to be probably some wind, and you know, it's going to be super cold. I got that. I got that. No problem. But it wasn't. They don't put in the brochure that you know you're going to be pinned down at fourteen thousand feet with the wind, with the tent off, you know, two inches off your face. That's not in the brochure. Yeah. Which is cool. Which is fine. That's what adventure is all about. But what you realize is, you know, maybe maybe it's not that important to you. Okay. I mean, some people would say it is, and that's why they die. That's why they die in Everest because they're going to get to the summit and then they're too tired to get back down. And you you know, it's, as Ed Veasters famously says, you know. Getting to the top is optional. Coming home is not. And that's why he's still alive. I really believe that that's, he's, he's walked off. He was going for his goal of all 8,000-meter peaks, and he had two of them, and he had to go back two or three times for it. And he was within 100, 200 yards of the summit. So, yeah, you know, I think that's, and I'm not even, I'm not too immersed into the mountaineering world, but I think for the commoner to, to understand that, that needs, that needs a different, um, it needs a different environment for them to actually even relate to, 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 to put into perspective all the work that goes into getting 200 feet from the summit. Right. And then having the wherewithal. Weeks. Weeks. To turn around. Months. We're talking about elite type decision making skills. Elite. Yeah, smart. Very, very wise people. And that's, you know, as they say, there's the old climber and the bold climber and they're not the same. And, you know, that's, that's wow. a that's a very true thing. So wow. so anyway, so yeah, so yeah, you know, tell, tell us what happened after so you you send out some texts. You're so I just send out some texts. Yeah, so you know, when you're out feeling tiny, very, very vulnerable. You know, when you send a text to your wife saying, Hey, tell the kids we're th- I'm thinking about them. It's real. Yeah, it's real. And is that the only is that the only one that got you that close? Uh well I've been close, but see that's the thing. I've had some really, I've had some close calls, you know, like I almost died of hyperthermia once. And that's actually, when you're going away on hyperthermia, you actually feel pretty good. It's pretty euphoric. It's pretty, it's pretty warm, pretty, pretty euphoric. It's only when you wake up that you realize you're in tr- big, big trouble. But here's what I'd say about this experience is sometimes, a lot of many times your near death experiences are like 30 seconds, one minute, you know, like you're, something happens. You're like, whoa, I can't believe I just, I can't believe that just happened. Right. When it goes on for hours, it gives you a lot more time to think about it. Man. Right? I mean, it's going on for hours. Like, God is letting that message get very, very clear to you. Wow. So finally it subsides. Yeah, we bust out of the tents. You know, we're walking around. We're like, whoa, was that intense? And ironically, it hardly snows in Antarctica. It doesn't snow very much. And we got like eight inches of snow. Say that, say that again. It doesn't snow very often in Antarctica. It's, it's a desert. It's a desert. I mean, that snow you see is accumulated over, you know, 200, 300 years. 
So it doesn't melt, but it doesn't accumulate. And so we got a, what would consider to be a pretty good powder day. <laughs> that was unusual. And, and it blows, so it blew off into the valley. But anyway, you know, we get up, we got a big hole where our kitchen tent was. Stoves are gone. Not all our food, but there's a fair bit of our food blew away. It's food sacks. And there's, it's gone. I mean, there's, like, no evidence whatsoever. And um, everybody's like, dude, that was intense. That was intense. And so forecast comes. 11 o'clock, forecast, another storm coming that day, 24 hours. And um, not as bad. They they can predict the winds, and the winds weren't going to be that high. I mean, they're not that high. I mean, 30, 40, uh, temperature low, of course. Uh, And then 50-50 chance of a summit day that next day. So at this point, we'd already been up there four nights. Um, You're going to definitely be up there six nights if you're going to go for the summit because you're going to wait for the storm to pass, and then that sixth day you'd go up, and then you come back down, you stay overnight. So you go to back to the, you go to the summit. It's a, and at this point, the technical section's done. It's a six-hour hike, one direction, kind of up a valley, and then you reach the peak, and then three hours back. So it's a nine-hour round trip, not, not small. So there's a bunch of logistics coming into play here. There's also the fact that we have, uh, we have a deadline three days out of when the big jet comes and picks us up. Okay, 757 is coming back. You got to get back down to the base camp to get the ski plane to get you back to the base, to the Union Glacier, to where the air base is. So these days are like, pretty soon you're like, wait a minute, we got like, we're starting to talk about 24 hour window, or you're staying another seven days. Okay, and the seven, the last, that final seven day would be the last day that they have that big plane come. So you're like, so basically it's decision time. Who wants to stay and go try, try for the summit? 50 50 chance. Who wants to go back down and, and not a guarantee, but be more assured you're going to get back to Union Glacier. So at that point, I said, you know what? It doesn't mean that much to me. I'm going to go down. I don't want to stay another week on the ice. I've been, I've been gone for three weeks, or I will have been gone for three weeks. I don't want to be gone for a month. And, and the guide said, hey, one of our lead guys says, look, I was stuck in there for 12 days. You know, two years ago, I was in Antarctica. I got stuck for 12 days when I wanted to leave. It's one thing when you're there to go do something, but when you're stuck there, and, you know, you got other things going on in your world, right? So everybody kind of had to acknowledge. And, and my son, my old Jake, said, hey, I'm going to stay. I'm like, cool, I respect that. Do you, do you want to go? Go for the summit. I don't blame you. You know, do it. And as it turned out, we got down to, we, so we turned. It was a nine-hour down climb through the powder. So it was pretty, actually, in the valleys, the powder was pretty deep, like up to your waist almost, because that's where it all blew off of the top of the mountains. Pretty tiring walk. It's a pretty tiring walk. And you go, to, you go down to low camp, you pick up your sled, and then you just keep pushing down to base camp. We got to base camp, and they're like, hey, there's, a, there's, issue, of, there's issue down in base camp of COVID, or sorry, down at the Union Glacier of COVID. Nobody's leaving here for three days. No planes. No planes are coming in. And we're not, as a matter of fact, you're not, nobody's coming in. They're not going to get a plane here until the big plane lands. Everything changes again. Everything changes. Logistics are daunting, right? I mean, there's just no way to figure out the formula. And so if you'd known that, I, yeah, would I made a different call? Yeah, I probably would have said, I'll just stay up here, right? I mean, and as it turned out, even when this big plane was supposed to come in, it doesn't come in. We got bad weather. And so, you know, you've got to be, that, I knew that. It was fully, you know, very clear in, in the material. These are estimates of your dates. They could vary widely. And I told people from the day I signed up, my biggest concern is I want to be stuck in Antarctica after this is over for five, six, seven days. And as it turned out, we were stuck for three more days than we planned. So 
you know, after a while, you go from total rejection to total acceptance. I mean, you realize nothing's in your control, never was, and you're just kind of like, okay, let's see what happens next. Enjoy the ride. Yeah, right? I mean, all the plans you thought you had, I mean, here you got to schedule out. I mean, I figured this would be the, I booked a flight back to the United States, what I figured would be the outside of my experience, outside of my time frame, and it was uh, two days after that that I actually left. So, you know, not, I mean, not, hey, there's worse problems in the world. Yeah. Wow. That's a, that's such a rich story um, to extract. There, there's so many great things that I'm even going, yeah, we got to talk about the fact that um, it's so imperative for people who have fallen into the rhythm of business time. Yeah, right. To, oh, yeah. To enter into a space where they're not a big shot. Everybody's equal. Everybody's equal. They aren't bound by the time. They're bound by the weather. Bingo. I, I think when I hear a guy... Weather like, or circumstances. I hear a guy like you say, I've never felt so small. Right. I go, oh, there's something there that Kevin will never <laughs> forget. Yeah. And I, I, that's just one area where I go, oh, we could spend an hour in that because it's so rich. It's so good. Right. This is, this is exactly why I built this podcast. The idea of adventure... Holding within, it, it in itself holds so much for us to learn from. Well, Sir Edmund Hillary said, "Climbing has little purpose but much meaning." Mm. He's the first guy to climb Everest. He was the f- yeah, and that that is very significant to me. Yeah, because yeah, we're down there. You know, look, what's the purpose? Right, we're down in Antarctica climbing a mountain. Okay, people ask me like, "Well, that's crazy. Why would you do that?" Yeah. And I'm like, you know. There's just a lot of reasons you go push yourself to the limit to see what happens and yeah. that kind of thing. And, you know, but yeah, you, the insights you get into yourself yeah. and your soul. And I will say it's very freeing. Yeah. I mean, I get back and I still, I still dream. I still have dreams of Antarctica. It's, it's, it's yeah. very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So that was mine. I'm, I'm just kind of going, that's one that I have a buffet in front of me that I'm going, Kevin, let's talk. <laughs> yeah. um, what, what jumps out at you? What took, you know, what came home with you where you said you're, you're having dreams about it? So you, you dream about Antarctica. You sit up late at night and you go, okay, what's, yeah, what's it's reeling through your mind? So there's three, you? There's, you know, there's three phases to recreation, right? Preparation for, participation in, and recollection of. Hmm. Okay, so preparation for is when you get your gear together and you're traveling to get there and blah, blah, blah. And then uh, participation in, obviously, is you're there. You're doing it. And then recollection of, obviously, is the most popular, not surprisingly. And I would say in this one, and it's like, it's still coming. Yeah. There's still, still insight coming to me. Yeah. It's, and I would, the other thing I use more recently, okay, so as you mentioned, I'm in my 60s, okay? I've, you know, five years ago, I wouldn't have gone, I wouldn't have thought of going down. I wouldn't have thought of going down and not summoning. I just, I would have been one of the, I wouldn't have, if I was sick, I would have went down. But if I wasn't sick, I'd have said, I'm staying up, I'm going to go to and I, what I've been operating under now, and I maybe wish I had operated under sooner, but I maybe wouldn't have done as much, is what I call NTP, nothing to prove. And part of it is because I've done all these other things, I don't have to prove anything to myself. And that's really ultimately, I think, for most of us. When I was on Killy, I think a lot of those guys had to go to the summit because they told other people that they were going to the summit. I really think that was a driver for them. I don't get driven by that. I'm driven by internally. Like I, I've been, in a, and I think there's probably a lot of listeners that can relate to this, that you've got to prove it to yourself. You know, you want to prove yourself. Like, why do you try and run the fast marathon or why do you try and race this mountain bike or whatever? 
you know, to me, is you're proving it to yourself. And I've kind of gotten into this mode where I'm like, nothing to prove. I don't, you know, it's like, look, I'm good. I've been here. I've had an amazing time. This is great, but I'm okay if I got to go down. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's so good. I'm going to piggyback on that. I think a lot of that has to do with your Christian faith. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah, it's not just all about me. No question. And that's part of it, too, is you don't, there's other things you need to live for, right? You need to have priorities in order. I mean, look, just, like, look, I'm the last guy to talk about don't do something because it's, you know, too scary or too dangerous or something like that. Like, you talked about calculated risk, which I use that term. I used to use that term constantly. And then there's this whole factor of things that you couldn't calculate. And again, back to the deep survival and making assumptions. There's just things you, didn't, you couldn't put in the formula because you didn't know what they were. And so part of it is, yeah, you, you know, there's missions to serve. There's, there's missions to serve your family, your grandkids, your kids, uh, others in your sphere of influence. Um, and those are, should be, uh, you know, you got to put those in a priority too. And I, you know, certainly when you're in those epic, like, you know, massive mountain storms, you know, you're questioning where's your priority, right? What got me here, <laughs> right? Why am I here? And you're here because you wanted to do a great epic adventure, and that's what you got. And yeah. so just make sure that that's – you think those through carefully because I do see people making decisions uh, about this is going to be epic. i got to go do this. And it's like, eh, maybe you do, maybe you don't, you know? Yeah, yeah. So from a personal standpoint, you've, uh, you've kind of cemented the fact that you've got nothing to prove. Yeah. From, uh, from an advice standpoint, I might hear you say – Hey, weigh your weigh your your risk very carefully, and and be careful to understand that you might not know what you don't know. That's exactly, and that and, and I would that applies to everything. It applies to business. It applies to adventure. It applies to life. Um, you know, there's been a few people that you know it's very popular to go for the seven summits, right? And I would say there was more than half of my team, climbing team, was going for the seven summits. Either they. Either, this wasn't their last one, but it was close, right? And which is cool. That's what they want to do. But I would say make sure the goals you're setting for yourself are worth attaining. That's so good. I think that's particularly good for guys in my season of life. I agree. Yeah. I agree. If I had to counsel myself, you know, back to the whatever pick of time, 30 to 55, my counsel would be, Make sure your goals are properly, are the goals you really want to have. Because I see them making choices that's like, that's not worth it. That's not worth it. Yeah. Wow. Kevin, uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you carving out an hour of your day to sit down and just share uh, an epic story with, uh, with so much flavor. Um, what I really appreciate about you is uh, there's wisdom there. I think uh, I think you represent a very very small subset of mountaineers who are 66. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, but there's more to that, and I think uh, your willingness to share some of the things that might not be so alluring about your past and what have sh- th- those ingredients that have helped to make the Kevin Cusack that you are now today. Um, just kind of shown through in our conversation. I just want to say thank you for being vulnerable with, with us. Well, I've enjoyed it. Obviously it's, if I can, if I, if any of this, you know, sparks something in someone else that they use wisely, that's been well worth the time. Awesome. Well worth it. 
any closing words, any, uh, any advice that, that, uh, you have for, for, uh, anyone else? I'm, I'm all ears, man. But, um, I would just say it's, you know, it's a big world and there's a lot of opportunities to do a lot of things. Choose wisely. Thanks. Yep. <laughs>